Hello, new and faithful listeners. Thanks for listening to this week's social action briefing that we are recording on Wednesday night, October 5th. Uh, my name is Craig Milch. I'm here with Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. And Martina Stevenson. Hello, Martina. Hello. Uh, so yesterday there was a there was oral argument uh, in an, another uh, voting rights uh, Supreme Court case. This one is Merrill versus Milligan. Um, we sort of talked about the uh, district court and appellate court ruling. Um, actually, it's district court ruling and then shadow docket ruling when it happened. So um, this this deals with Alabama's congressional maps, um, which currently would give only one of the state's seven congressional districts, uh, 14% of the state's total population, a real chance of electing a Black representative, even though African-Americans make up uh, 27% of Alabama's population. Uh, oral argument was yesterday, uh, Tuesday the 4th. Um, in January, the a district court panel of uh, three federal judges, including two appointed by Trump, uh, wrote a 225-page thorough decision that concluded that Alabama must draw new maps that would effectively double the number of Black U.S. House members from Alabama. And then um, a few weeks later, uh, the Supreme Court, without full briefing or argument uh, and ignoring the district court's findings of discrimination, uh, voted 5-4 to keep the old maps for 2022 and hear uh, full argument later, um, with Justice Kavanaugh basically writing that an election being nine months away and the primary even being three months away is just too close to an election and might confuse people um, relying on a case called Purcell versus Gonzalez that we've referenced before, which is really meant to prevent last minute changes like changing polling places the night before an election. Uh, but since the there's been a conservative majority, um, it's been abused and expanded to prevent courts from making elections fairer and less racist. So in February, Kavanaugh um, was joined by, Elise, uh, by Alito and basically asserted uh, that the entire election year is too close to change anything. Um, we saw sort of a number of rulings. Um, we went over it and it's basically, they use the standard that uh, that benefits their political outcome. We know this about the Supreme Court. Of course. Um, and yeah, and I mean, that is what we're sort of expecting um, in this case. You know, um, I mean, well, Similar speculation when it came to Dobbs and Roe, which was, you know, they're going to weaken it uh, without overturning it. Um, and then they just overturned Roe with Dobbs. So who knows? But what has happened um, in, uh, oral, in briefing and oral argument, um, Alabama uh, has made claims that the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional as applied to congressional districts um, because it uh relies uh well they 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 say that it should not apply to challenges to single member districts 
meaning that the act safeguards against racial gerrymandering would cease to exist altogether if the court goes along with it. Um, so, you know, as long as the state uses legislative districts that each elect exactly one person to office, as opposed to a system uh, where a single district elects multiple lawmakers, and currently no state uses multi-member districts to select members of Congress. Some use them to choose state lawmakers, but none on the congressional level. Uh, the other main thrust of their argument is that any use of race in redistricting is per se unconstitutional. Um, so there's this Gingles test established by Thornburg versus Gingles uh, that says plaintiffs alleging that a state's maps do not give enough representation uh, to black voters must show that the state's African-American population is, quote, sufficiently large and geographically compact uh, to constitute a majority within an additional district. Um, Alabama is saying that that needs to be done in a race-neutral way. They are also arguing uh, that there must be racist intent, uh, even though changes to the Voting Rights Act legislation uh, were signed into law by Ronald Reagan, clarifying that any state law that results in a denial or a abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color is illegal, even if the law was not motivated by racist intent. And it just so happens. So there was a conservative faction within the Reagan administration that urged him to veto it. And it just so happens that one of the central figures of this faction was our current chief justice, John Roberts. And to track back on, uh, on sort of that first part, um, well, the first part of the second part, the second argument. So they're basically saying that, you know, when, so the first thing you need to do in, in this uh, Gingles test is basically show that it is possible to draw, like in this case, two majority black districts without like going crazy and without like having to stretch, you know, what normal districts are. And they're trying to say that you can't, when you're drawn, like finding those, you can't consider race when you do that. So they got into like, they got into like AI drawing districts. And if there's a million of them, like are any gonna be majority black in a simulation? And then I think it was Jackson, or it was one of the liberal justices that sort of pointed out that uh, like al AI algorithms are racist generally uh like are off at least often racist because of who programs them um, yeah um i mean but, this entire argument seems to be predicated on the fact that these individuals are trying to perpetrate a colorblind agenda because they know that the only people that benefit from a colorblind agenda are white people um, yep. and that really sums it up <laughs> yep and it's and it's like a line of argument that like on its face can sound fair if you don't think about any of the consequences, like uh, like with voter ID. Um, yeah, it can you know. sound fair until you realize whose mouth it's coming out of. <laughs> and then you realize that their entire goal in life is to just ensure that there are as few black or brown representatives as humanly possible. And that is what helps people like them get into and maintain their power. Yeah. 
Um, so, and then oral arguing here was uh, Justice Jackson's second uh, participation oral argument. The first was a day prior in a case that was uh, about how to regulate wetlands under the Clean Water Act. But here um, in Merrill, uh, she made quite a splash. Um, she spoke about how the enactment of the 14th Amendment, um, that how its aim was to redress historic harms to Black people in the aftermath of the Civil War and the end of slavery. She said that, quote, the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. As a result, she wondered how could the state be barred from considering race when deciding whether more majority Black districts should be drawn. So, you know, uh, the Alabama lawyers are trying to say that, oh, the 14th Amendment, equal protection, you know, you need to be colorblind. And she kind of gave them a history lesson. You know, the 14th Amendment was put in place to make sure that there wasn't, you know, discrimination against Black people. So how could you think that you should be race blind when, when dealing with these issues? And so, you know, and, you know, this is still, uh, you know, a 6-3 court. Um, so it kind of remains to be seen whether, you know, uh, Justice Jackson kind of joins Kagan and, and, and Sotomayor to just have people with, you know, liberal or progressive or, you know, humanitarian values feel seen, or if it can actually, you know, affect the outcome. Yeah, I don't know, but I listened to, um, I listened to the oral argument. Well, I listened to the one part where uh, Justice Jackson was basically giving a history lesson. And I just feel like it's so important for people to hear what she was saying um, and to hear it when they are younger. <laughs> like these are things that people just don't people don't there are people who willfully don't understand. Like they're obviously the people on the Supreme Court are reasonably intelligent humans or they wouldn't be there, but they also are supremely racist and sexist and don't give a fuck about anybody but themselves and people who look like them or honestly really probably just their family, not even people who look like them. Like people need to hear these things at younger ages. They need to have their, you know, life and opinions and ideas formed around these ideas that the world is an unjust and unfair place and that these laws exist not in an effort to subjugate white people as they oftentimes feel like it is, but to be inclusive of people who have been subjugated for hundreds of years. Yeah. And for people that do want to listen, um, I saw so Mark Joseph Stern, who we reference uh, pretty often, um, clipped a bunch of portions of the argument. So I would peruse his Twitter feed to find that. And, you know, just the existence of those clips, I feel like it's probably made its way onto TikTok. So it's, that's an optimistic uh, aspect of the existence of TikTok is uh, content like that spreading among uh, the youth. As yeah. And it's also yeah. really important for every single person who thought this was like a fucking affirmative action appointment that like her presence on this court is sorely needed, even if it is simply to school all the old white men on history. But that also, you know, 
the other people on this court are going to retire or at the very least at some point die. Um, and this court is not, doesn't have to stay a six, three conservative majority for long. And that hopefully we will see, um, you know, some majority opinions written by the justice in the next couple of years that are, you know, helpful on these issues and making the world a better place, or at least this part of the world, a better place. Inshallah, as they say. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like um, the idea. Yeah, I agree with um, the fact that I was kind of smiling as she was schooling them about the history. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I like the fact that for the first time in history, you have four women, um, you know, on that bench. And I'm hoping they'll hopefully stick together we know how sometimes women can get among each other but i hope they'll put their heads together and you know really make a difference well i'm not worried about three of them yeah i'm well, definitely worried about the fourth one <laughs> yeah i think she's pretty anti-woman uh, oh anti well yeah the, I, listen how can i forget her <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I just got so excited that I thought, oh, four women, great. But then when you hear hear that, Dobbs, I'm like, oh, no. So I'll, I'll take that one back. But hopefully the three, yes. Well, hopefully the three can. And it seems like from past cases that they will. Um, but, you know, it's funny because it's like it's nothing like personal against Selena Kagan. But like whenever I look at the pictures, like I see her and Amy Coney Barrett and I just can't help but think that like all of like this just harmful things that collectively white women have done to all other women, like in the history of this country and how it like concerns me. And there isn't like a there isn't like a real reason why it concerns me when it comes to Elena Kagan, like her you know, past decisions seem like, okay, like they seem solid, but it just, I just always look at that and just think of like, well, the history of like, just white women being complete and total assholes, like I can probably. <laughs> oh, and the other thing, you know, the people that saw Justice Jackson's appointment as a affirmative action thing, they're gonna, when they, if they even get to the point of hearing her history lesson they're just gonna say that it's critical race theory they're gonna see it as critical race theory so yeah. i don't have a whole lot of hope for them no. uh but, there's no uh, changing their minds like that's not yeah. that's not the point of like and shouldn't yeah. be the point of anything that she does it wasn't the point of like my comment it's more just like people are stupid <laughs> this woman has worked hard her entire life and and probably 20 times as hard as anybody else sitting on that court to get where she has gotten. And it's just, we are how many hundreds of years into the history of this country. And it's like, I just am so tired, especially of women tearing down other women. Like this is an affirmative action thing. And it just, uh, I started watching <clears throat> the new quantum leap because I got so excited that they <clears throat> actually, cast like an Asian guy as the lead in this show and then I started reading things online and just wanted to vomit this week because people's like overt racism is just so disgusting um but if you want to see like a, a brighter future for this country I just highly recommend watching the show because like the entire cast of the show is so diverse and it's just so nice to see people 
who isn't just like a whole white cast, like on a show that like isn't about that directly, isn't about diversity directly. And it's just like these people living like their best work lives with being themselves. And it's just so nice. But then I started reading all these comments from these people who are saying this shit about, you know, Justice Brown. And like, I just, oh, I just, it's been a week and I feel a little gross and people are kind of assholes. So Quantum Leap is like a good vibes show. So it was, yeah, so there was a Quantum Leap from like 1989 or some, I don't know, it was like a long time ago and they are, they're redoing it. It's not like a reboot. It's like a continuation of the last one. Um, and they went out, actually the original one that started sometime in the eighties and ended sometime in the nineties. One of the executive producers on the show, even at that time was actually a black woman, um, which for back then was like a big leap because it was very difficult at that time for any woman, but especially black women to be in an executive producer position. But the whole cast was all like white men. And they are doing like a continuation of the show. And I wasn't like, the first one was like, okay. It wasn't like a favorite show of mine, but I love sci-fi. So I was like, I was like hell bent on watching this one when I found out that they cast the main character um, as an Asian guy. And I was, it's so rare in Hollywood in general, but even more so on a TV show that isn't centered around his Asian identity. Um, and then I watched the show and it turns out that there's five main characters and two of them are Asian. One is an Asian woman and one is an Asian man. And I was like, wow, that like way blows out the quota that like, usually if there's like one Asian person in a main cast, that's like too much, they're never going to hire another one. Um, one of them is a black man and another one is a non-binary person and a white woman. And I was just like, I was shocked, but I was also like really excited. And then unfortunately started reading things online, but it's just like, what I love about it is that this is like a show that has like an established fandom and like has been around, like it was, it's an older show now, like the original one, but like this whole show is not centered on these people's identities. It's a sci-fi show centered on time travel that like went out of its way to cast a diverse cast of people that like, you know, are just like doing their jobs and living their lives. And it's like nice that the show isn't like, there's so many shows that are like specifically like centered on LGBTQ plus identity. And like, that's all it's about. And it's like, just nice to see like a show that's like just a show. And these people are like living their best work lives and like being themselves. And it was really nice. (laughs) I hope I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some segment on Fox News about how that is destroying the fabric of America. Yeah, it's just like how they're talking <laughs> about now the little mermaid. I'm like, it's fictional, get over it. What's up with the yeah. little mermaid? Oh, well, they cast um a black um girl for the lead as Ariel. And you know, like people are throwing a fit that she's black. This one guy yeah. is like, oh, scientifically, yeah. look at it. If she's living underwater, she could be pale, white, and all this crazy oh, theories. No. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's fictional, people. <laughs> Get over it. You know how many black, I mean, white people have put on black faces and all these crazy, like, 
things they've done instead of having to hire the actual people to play certain parts. And now you have you're having a fit on a, about a fictional character. Get over yourself. Yeah, scientifically, Jesus isn't white. So, you know. No, no, no. Yeah, that's like definitely a scientific thing, too. It's not even fictional. Um, it, it was like the late well, first of all I think they freaked out when there was like actually a princess that was like from the beginning black a couple of years ago but I can't remember the names I'm not like a huge Disney person princess I, and the frog one that the princess and the frog oh, okay but people started like freaking out about it and then they pointed out that like in the late 90s there was like a live action version of Cinderella and they Oh, Brandy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And people didn't freak out as much back then, but it wasn't that they weren't freaking out. It's that the internet wasn't as popular, so they couldn't publicly freak out. They could only freak out to their idiot white friends. <laughs> yeah, they just complained <laughs> about it in the bar. Yeah, or closed doors. Yeah. <laughs> the internet wasn't as big as it is now. There was no social media. But yeah, it's. I'm sure there is some segment on Fox and like I'm not good at like watching television every week. And I have never once like actually caught this when it was on TV. I always streamed it like a day or two after, but like I'm determined to just keep watching it because I want the ratings to be good and I want it to continue. And it is a really good show too, but normally I'm the kind of person that'll wait like two or three seasons into a show and then binge watch it. <laughs> but I'm like, I actually yeah, make the point I of the same. Yeah, because it's like, why not? But it's like, I don't know. It's just like so refreshing. Like the person on the show, their name on the show is Ian. I'm not sure what their name in real life is, um, is non-binary and a physicist. And it's like, how fantastic is it for like every little kid and adult and teenager to see this and like, just see a person like as a physicist, like living their best life, like doing their thing. And like, it just, I wish there was more of this on television. And I, have hope that there will be so that the next generation of humans that are on the Supreme Court are not as super racist <laughs> as the ones that are on there right now. Way to bring it back. Um, Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after, soon after uh, last episode, uh, Jesse texted us um, <laughs> and, uh, a piece for our, one of our favorite current segments, um, about Republican hypocrisy. We'll get to what you texted about uh, shortly, but we'll start uh, over in Georgia, where uh, Herschel Walker, who is uh, a football legend running for Senate uh, against Raphael Warnock, who says he wants to completely ban abortion, likens it to murder, and claims that there should be, quote, no exception uh, for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. mother. Um, a woman who asked not to be identified out of privacy concerns told the Daily Beast, who broke the story, that after she and Walker conceived a child when they were dating in 2009, he urged her to get an abortion. Uh, the woman said she had the procedure and that Walker reimbursed her for it. She supported these claims with a $575 receipt from the abortion clinic, a get well card from Walker and a bank deposit receipt that included an image of a signed $700 personal check from Walker. The woman uh, who also provided proof of her romantic relationship with Walker, which uh, thankfully didn't go into more detail about what that might be, uh, told the Daily Beast that he mailed her the check uh, inside the Get Well card. 
Um, mm. Apparently, months before news broke alleging uh, that he paid for an abortion, uh, top Republicans in the state, including those advising his team, knew about it and warned him that the story uh, could torpedo his campaign. Uh, his team downplayed it uh, and basically hoped it wouldn't come out. Um, and uh, Roger Sullenberger of the Daily Beast this morning said that the Politico story that that you know of uh, that the allegation was circulating. Um, doesn't track with what he knows about the story that he reported. So he says it's, quote, highly, highly possible that these are two different allegations. Uh, Regardless, uh, as you can imagine, the Republican Party did not swiftly uh, renounce Herschel Walker for what they consider to be murder. Instead, they have rallied uh, in support. Trump said, uh, quote, Herschel has properly denied the charges against him, and I have no doubt he is correct. They are trying to destroy a man who has true greatness in his future, just as he had athletic greatness in his past. Uh, the Republican National Committee chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, who used to go by Ronna Romney McDaniel before uh, Trump forced her to stop using the Romney part, uh, said Georgia could decide the Senate majority, so desperate Democrats and liberal media have turned to anonymous sources and character assassination. This is an attempt to distract from Warnock's record of failing, a failure resulting in rising costs and out of control crime. Um, and then uh, the American Conservative Union President Matt Schlapp said, took a sort of a different tack. Uh, mm-hmm. He said, he's a quintessential example of when a celebrity decides to run for office, they often don't fully understand the microscope that accompanies the decision and in the politics of personal destruction, which we have been in for too many years, they're going to try and say anything to rip you apart. My advice to Herschel Walker and any other imperfect conservative, which is anyone who walked the earth except our savior and his mother is, yep, you've probably made mistakes in your life. And if you want to own up to it, you should. And if you don't think it's people's business, tell them to flip off and just stay on message. Dana Loesch, of the NRA and uh, Breitbart made the position of party leaders clear. Um, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want to control the Senate. And as Elise Hogue pointed out, this is from her tweet. Uh, she's a progressive activist and former president of NARAL. It's about control, control of women, control of society, control of the court. And that's sort of the principle that we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, that it's really just, you know, you can't control us and we can control you. So they don't care that Herschel got, you know, paid for an abortion as long as they can force uh, other women and people who can give birth to do so. Um, And uh, I think that's all this is about. I mean, let's be honest, anybody we could make an abortion illegal throughout this entire country with no exceptions for anything. And people in power are always going to be able to pay for their mistresses to get abortions. They are either going to have doctors on call to do it, or they will pay for plane tickets to get to Canada and other countries where it is still legal. This has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't have anything to do with the sanctity of life or religion. It has to do with control and that's it. Yeah. Um, more hilarious uh, attempts at, uh, at covering here. 
Um, <laughs> Newt Gingrich. Uh, so, you know, Justin uh, Baragona of the Daily Beast characterized uh, some statements by Newt Gingrich that basically said that Herschel Walker, whose brain was damaged by a, a bunch by football, should be in the Senate because of his deep commitment to Christ so he can replace an actual reverend. Uh, Mehdi Hassan is a host on MSNBC. Well, let's remember uh, that, you know, what Senator Warnock also tweets all of the time how he is a pro-choice pastor. And while there are also always many people that thank him or stand up for him, there are tons of people who literally tear this man down for saying that all over. Um, and it's really like quite disgusting. Some of the comments he receives for that, but again, you know, being a person who can't get pregnant, um, and understanding the control mechanism of it, you know, like, I, I don't understand why people who can't get pregnant feel like they can have an opinion that people who can get pregnant can't access an abortion. Like you're never <laughs> going to even experience the potential fear that you're pregnant. If you can't get pregnant, <laughs> like, None of your goddamn business what other people do. Yeah, and it's control too, because it's like this man clearly like impregnated someone, having never like thought like, oh, I don't want to have a kid right now. Maybe I should use a condom. Like maybe I should like find some other form of birth control that works. But like then it turns around and expects everybody else to do the thing that he couldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, many Hassan pointed out that Newt, Gamer Newt Gingrich, who infamously cheated on multiple wives, including one who was sick at the time, mm -hmm. is now the moral character reference for fellow Georgia, fellow Georgia Republican and devout Christian family man Herschel Walker. Gotcha. And uh, Amon, uh, who is also uh, Amon uh, Moyaldine. Um, who also is a uh, host on MSNBC said, imagine being so Christian that you opt to vote for a man who reportedly committed violence against his family, fathered multiple children with different women, paid for an abortion and was absent as a father rather than vote for a reverend who studied and taught Christianity. So, I mean, you know, there's Here's the thing. And this is like the most important part of this whole thing is I don't actually give a shit how many kids he had with how many different people or whether or not he even participated in his children's lives. The problem I have is that when he can't do any of those things and then expects other people to do them, like it doesn't matter, but you cannot be the party of morality and actually not follow any of your own moral teachings. If you don't want to follow them, then stop preaching them to other people. Yes. Um, on to our next uh, nugget of hypocrisy, and uh, I'll, I, you know, your mom has suggested this uh, before, um, and uh, this time I really feel compelled to give a little bit of a trigger warning um, for uh, treatment of animals. Um, so apparently, a review of 75 studies published by Dr. Oz between 1989 and 2010 reveals that uh, the Republican Senate candidate's research killed over 300 dogs and inflicted significant suffering on them. 
um, and the other animals used in the experiments. Uh, Dr. Oz was, quote, a principal investigator at the Columbia University Institute of Comparative Medicine Labs for years and assumed, quote, a full scientific, administrative, and fiscal responsibility for the conduct of his studies. Over the course of 75 studies published in academic journals reviewed by Jezebel, who broke this story, Oz's team conducted experiments on at least 1,027 live animals subjects that included dogs, pigs, calves, rabbits, and small rodents. 34 of these experiments resulted in the deaths of at least 329 dogs, while two of his experiments killed 31 pigs and 38 experiments killed 661 rabbits and rodents. In the early 2000s, testimony from a whistleblower and veterinarian named uh, Catherine Delorto about Oz's research detailed extensive suffering inflicted on his team's canine test subjects, including multiple violations of the Animal Welfare Act, where, which sets minimum standards of care for dogs, cats, primates, rabbits, and other animals in possession of animal dealers and laboratories. Um, the law specifically requires researchers and breeders to use pain-relieving drugs or euthanasia on the animals and not use paralytics without anesthesia or experiment multiple times on the same animal. Delorto testified that a dog experimented on by Oz's team experienced lethargy, vomiting, paralysis, and kidney failure, but wasn't euthanized for a full two days. She alleged other truly horrifying examples of gratuitously cruel treatment of dogs, including at least one dog who was kept alive for a month for continued experimentation despite her unstable, painful condition, despite how data from her continued experimentation was deemed unusable. And this, this to me was the, was the worst sounding part. According to Del Orto, one Oz-led study resulted in a litter of puppies being killed by intracardiac injection with syringes of expired drugs inserted in their hearts yeah. without any sedation. And upon being killed, the puppies were allegedly left in a garbage bag with living puppies who were their litter mates. Whew. In May, are you talking about the same Dr. Oz, that yeah. so-called American sweet person that uh, runs the a talk show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and then in uh, in May two thousand four. Columbia University was ordered by the USDA to pay a penalty, $2,000 penalty for violations of the Animal Welfare Act. Um, it was a paid, it was a result of a settlement between the university and the USDA based on findings of Columbia's internal investigation of Oz's research. Um, according to the whistleblower, the investigation team had investigators on the committee that were also complicit in this type of poorly designed, cool animal experimentation. Uh, now, I mean, you know, th this is supposed to be a segment about uh, hypocrisy um, and to, the way that I'm going to make it eligible is uh, also one of the <laughs> one of the better dunks, you know, John Fetterman's campaign against Dr. Oz has been pretty good on social media, just dunking all over him. And after this story, he took a a photo of Dr. Oz from May 14th, a post, a Twitter post. The last week of campaign can be stressful. Thank you to therapy dog Teddy 
for the free session, hashtag Pups for Oz. And uh, it's Oz holding a very cute puppy in, in some sort of outfit. And uh, and Fetterman campaign, well, John Fetterman's account quote tweeted and said, has anyone seen this dog since May? Uh, and that, that kind of, the laugh that I got from that sort of balanced the, uh, the terror from reading the details of uh, the whistleblower's allegations. So there's the hypocrisy. He cuddles a dog and, and, and uh, tortured and maimed or mistreated countless others. So that's, that's how we're uh, including that in the hypocrisy segment. Okay. I mean, seriously, I think we need like a really good trigger warning on this. Like I have already texted someone to be like, don't listen this week. That is disgusting. This is so disturbing. And I'm, I'm shocked because that's why I stopped you. I said, is this the same Dr. Oz that, Mm -hmm. you know, he has all these great medical advice on TV. He seems so sweet. He talks about his family. He seems so perfect. And this is what he's you know, dealing with it's the most disturbing uh, thing. He's kind of a disgusting person. Wow. It's not good. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that in the, this, uh, like the messaging about this is also um, going along with messaging about how on his show, Doc, when Dr. Oz was uh, hawking all these remedies, they were pseudoscience and false and really screwed people up that followed him so his medic he did not really have great medical advice he was a doctor that was basically selling snake oil so that's that was the other like the you know the first part of the campaign was all about how dr oz is out of touch rich guy rich celebrity from jersey and the sort of closing argument was that he's a snake oil salesman and then this puppy thing came out so they're throwing that in there too Oh, that's oh my gosh. I mean, anybody who knows me knows I'm like not a big fan of having a dog in my house, but no, uh-uh. I don't even wear makeup if they experiment on pets. That's disgusting. Like, ew, it just it's like the true sign of like a complete psychopath, too. Like, if yeah. You- that's yeah, that's very disturbing. I can only imagine him as a doctor treating patients so what the heck goes behind closed doors with you and your patients well i mean yeah um i mean yeah i guess it could be said that you know he wasn't uh physically doing this stuff but he was overseeing the experiments that resulted in this this treatment so it's not right that's just just bad because you're supporting it you know yeah you're advocating for it. Oh my God. I found out like, this was like years and years and years ago. I found out that Mac, the makeup that I was using started doing business in China. And in China, it's a requirement that cosmetic companies experiment on animals before they can put their products to market. I stopped buying their shit right away. I was like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not spending money there anymore. That's disgusting. Don't experiment on animals. People have been using makeup, like basically since the beginning of time, we know what's good and what's not like, Mm-hmm. Enough. There's no reason for this. Should be able to do it just with computer modeling at this point. No, seriously. It's like it's yeah. so disgusting. I literally stopped buying their stuff. And I really liked their makeup, but no, I'm not supporting that or condoning it or putting my money towards it. That's gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I stopped using their stuff a few years back. 
um, which I don't wear much makeup anyway, but I would just, I used to have their concealers and like the powder, but it's been over like 10 years now at this point. It's probably been about 10 years when I found out about it. I mean, I don't think that I found out as soon as it started happening, but as soon as I found out, I stopped. But yeah, I Mm -hmm. loved their concealers and it took me a long time to find something else. But like, no, that's gross. Like I am not participating or like spending my money at places that do, oh, gross. Mm -mm. (laughs) And it kind of proves the point. Like their shit was good already. Like, why are you even experimenting? Yeah. Why experiment? Yeah. No. Money gain, I guess. Well, yeah, because they wanted to sell it in China because there are a ton of people, obviously, that live in China. It's like a good business market for them. And no, that's gross. I am not supporting you like getting richer. Like you're already rich enough. You don't need to sell to more people. Like maybe you should advocate to the Chinese government to make change so that you can sell your products there without being morally corrupt. But as I've been saying all day, Clearly, I just asked for too much. Um, so that brings us to the uh, inspiration, the original inspiration mm-hmm. for uh, bringing back this segment, which is Ron DeSantis. And um, so in, he was a freshman congressman in 2013, uh, Tea Party freshman, uh, or he's a, a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. Um, and... He said that a federal bailout for the New York region after Hurricane Sandy was an irresponsible boondoggle, a symbol Mm. of the, quote, put it on the credit card mentality, end quote, that he had come to Washington to oppose. Um, DeSantis and Representative Ted Yoho, another hardline conservative who uh, listeners may recognize from... uh, his spat with uh, AOC, I think on the Capitol steps. Um, you think he called her a name or was just disgusting to her, but that's the type of person that he is. Uh, they were the only House members from Florida to oppose the Sandy package. Uh, for DeSantis, represented a coastal district in eastern Florida, the vote at once established him as an eager combatant for the party's ascendant right wing, uh, while at times placing him on the defensive back home. In a local interview that year, DeSantis said the bill contained, quote, extraneous stuff that could not be classified as emergency spending. Quote, I never made the point of saying we shouldn't do anything, Mm. he said, adding that he could have supported a leaner package focused on immediate relief, uh, asked if he would vote against the relief package that affected his own district. DeSantis was noncommittal, suggesting he would support a responsible plan. I remember seeing somewhere in an interview that he gave an example of repairs to like the Library of Congress's roof or like the Smithsonian's roof or something. And it was a roof that was damaged by the storm. And he saw that as wasteful. Um, so that just shows how full of shit he is. Um, and then, of course, with Ian, he uh, humbly, well, I don't know humbly, but he requested aid from, uh, from Biden. And their offices have, of course, been working together because uh, President Joe Biden does not extort political enemies in time of crisis like he did with uh covid aid um and uh and governors that that he uh just you know was like we're, we're against politically or whatever um so you mean as he didn't also do with that it was trump that was doing that yeah yeah 
Yeah, the way it came out made it seem like it was Biden oh. doing it, but yeah, it's fine. I got what right. you were saying. I just want to make sure other people did, but yeah, it's, I mean, in addition- Very likely that, that DeSantis would do that, would behave as Trump, because that is what he has made his career doing. He yeah. had that bootlicking uh, ad about building the wall with his kid out of Legos, and he's been imitating his uh, speech patterns and hand gestures and just wants to uh, 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 imitate Trump in every way possible. No, he does. And in addition to him voting against the New York aid and then turning around and asking for aid for Florida, um, 16 of the House Republicans from the state of Florida voted against aid for their own state. Oh, yes. Which is. Yes, I, I meant to include that. I'm glad you threw that in there. Yes. Yeah, which is fascinating to me because I just really don't understand how this is even like a like a thing like all right I get it and I get angry all the time because I am from a state like New York where we send a lot more money to DC than we get back from DC um in addition to that being from Long Island and New York City we also send a lot more money to Albany than we ever get back from them like we are an area of the state that unfortunately are considered givers not takers so when things like Sandy happen once every, you know, 20, 30 years, like the expectation that the federal government's going to help in and come in and help a little bit is like not you know, wildly out of the question. So it does kind of surprise me, given that Florida is a state that is a taker, doesn't have an income tax for the state. And I'm not a fan of income taxes. I'm not trying to advocate for income taxes. Um, but Florida is taking more money from the federal government that it's given than it's giving in. Um you know, I'm surprised that they would even vote against this, but I guess a lot of them probably have aspirations for higher office and want to prove that they're not, you know, that they're not wasteful spenders. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I just, the hypocrisy is epic. And when that came up on my phone, it was the first thing that I thought of. <laughs> yeah it's pretty glaring um and uh don't expect it to end anytime soon i don't but i really do hope that next time you know because there is going to be a next time that there is a natural disaster in the northeast in a predominantly democratic state that the state of florida just keeps their mouth shut and remembers that when they were in need when, i'm sorry not when they were in need that when their constituents were in need they got help from the federal government and other places um and because that is what we should do we should help people in need i'm in no way advocating for us to not give money to florida but maybe for some of the florida republicans to just fuck off and keep their mouth shut <laughs> seriously so that uh from one segment one favorite segment to the next now we're up to uh tina's tbd <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you craig uh, so this week, um, talking about the U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, uh, where they there's a staffing um, solution. Uh, of, it's called the base the base staffing solutions of WNY um, Incorporation in Buffalo, New York. 
um, is to pay $550,000 to settle U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment um, Opportunity Commission discriminatory hiring placement suit. So what basically happened is that according to the EEOC, the staffing solutions was reported either to refuse to hiring um, highly qualified black applicants or place them in the lowest paying, um, least desirable jobs. Also compiled with um, clients, race, uh, sex preferences, placed employees in positions on race and sex and rejected pregnant applicants. In addition to this, the, uh, the complaint alleged that applicants over 50 were routinely rejected. Um, so they were also importantly um, asked about injuries and medical conditions and then rejected if the company deemed them disabled. So from there, the staffing solution alleged hiring practices violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act um, of 1964, which um, also the American with Disabilities Act and Age Discrimination in, in Employment Act, which prohibit discrimination based on age, disability, race, sex, as well as retaliation. Um, the EO, EEOC filed suit in the U.S. District Court for Western District um, of New York after the first attempt, after first attempting to reach a pre-legislation, I'm sorry, pre-litigation of settlement through its conciliation, um, conciliation process. Um, then the case was pretty much litigated, I'm sorry, litigated Okay, for some reason, I don't know why I can't say this word. Um, uh, litigated? Yeah, litigated by trial attorneys. Um, attorneys Daniel Seltzer and Renee Oliver and supervisory trial attorney Nora Curtin. So from there, um, the regional director following the regional, um, the, he's actually the original uh, attorney. Jeffrey Burstein states that the law is clear that complying with clients, a client's discriminatory request is illegal. The EOC local office um, from there, well, is gonna continue to be um, vigilant in its efforts to identify employers who discriminate and ensure unlawful conduct stops. Um, so, with this um, article, what it led me to think about is the forms that we have in terms of employment. Um, why do they ask age, race, and gender? And oftentimes I will see, are you able to lift items more than 50 pounds? Um, so for me, this leads me to think that this is all discriminatory. Um, it's just in a very, I guess, discreet way. Um, so I'm not sure. What do you guys think about the employment applications when they ask of age and race and gender? 
Well, you're not even supposed to be able to ask for someone's age. The only question you're supposed to be allowed to ask is if it's applicable to the job, if you're over the age of 18, because there are obviously jobs that have like age requirements and, you know, some of them do make sense, but the ability to lift things, oftentimes it'll be like 25 or 50 pounds. is just a way of basically saying like, we don't want certain types of people here. Um, because most of those jobs don't actually require you to. And it's interesting because I was perusing through some website a couple of months ago that had um, like job descriptions on it. And it's fascinating because you can pretty easily tell the difference between jobs that actually require certain physical activities versus jobs that will say things like, oh, you need to be able to lift 25 or 50 pounds, but can't even give you one example of how you're going to do it. So it really seems like an unnecessary way of discouraging certain people from, from like applying for the job in the first place. But the jobs that actually require physical activity are like very clear about what you have to be able to do to successfully perform the job and like give examples of things that you would have to do so that people can you know, accurately determine if that is the job for them versus these like, you know, administrative assistant positions that are like, you have to carry boxes. They're 25 to 50 pounds. And it's like, dude, nobody prints anything anymore. Like, what am I carrying? Like, I don't understand. Like what would even like be able to weigh that much given that like in the past, people may actually have had to have done that because records were printed and in, on paper and like you may actually have to lift things, but it's really just bullshit now and in a way to discourage people from actually applying. It's so crazy. And yeah, even if even someone can't, there should be, I mean. Accommodation based on the Disability yeah. Act. Yeah. yeah. I often think about that or even like the race um, question why oftentimes i'll ask them why mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're like oh for research purposes no you're discriminating in a in a way that you know you just you know you're not saying it but that's what it is because think about it if my education and my skills is enough what does my race have to do with it so it's crazy but i think that jobs actually have to ask that question and like this is sort of one of those situations where it's like a really a double-edged sword. So they have yeah. to answer that question because they have to prove that they're not, like basically they have to prove that they're not intentionally being racist. So they have to prove that like, say for example, like there were, you know, uh, there was one job available and there were 10 applicants and eight of those applicants were like black women and two of them were like, white women or white men and they hired like the white woman or the white guy like they do actually have to justify why they they made that decision because it seems overwhelmingly in favor of like a black woman getting that job based on the applications however asking that question in the first place and having the jobs have that information before they even meet you will just lead to like racist things happening like from the get-go but it like theoretically was put there to like protect people. It's just clearly not working. Um, and there have been proposals of like, and some companies will voluntarily do these things where like the hiring, the person who's actually doing the hiring, the person who's actually making the decision will only receive from HR 
like a resume from a person that doesn't have their name or any location on it. It will just have like the information of the jobs that they've had in the past in an effort to prevent these things from happening. So like HR will have the information. They'll have your application where you had to put like, you know, your race and, you know, like all these different things, but the hiring managers won't actually have it. And I think that that is probably a better way of doing it so that people are being accurately judged on their education and experience as whether or not they'll fit for that job instead of having to answer these questions and then be judged based on where they live or their race or whatever before they even meet anybody. Yeah. I mean, on that, you mentioned, are they, they're listing their names? No, they're not listing. No. no, no, no. And this is like a very voluntary thing that only some companies are doing, but what they're doing is basically like HR is getting all of your information and they're assigning all of the applicants, like a number, like we get assigned like a solar ID number at Stony Brook and the, the person who's actually doing the hiring only receives the resume with like the work experience on it. So an education. So like they'll take off the name and they'll take off the location of prior jobs and where you live so that the person who is actually doing the hiring can't make judgments based on like what they perceive you to be based on your name or like where you live or the locations of your prior jobs. So they're literally just looking at the experience of the person and they have like a hiring number that was assigned to you because we know too from research that the more white your name sounds, the more likely you are to even get an interview in the first place. Right. Yeah. Cause that's exactly what I was going to get into. Um, that's why I asked specifically, are they removing the names and just, I imagine they would just give you a number mm-hmm. um, just to identify you because we, we know, you know, research have proven with the names they you know, often would discriminate. Um, but that's what's going on with um, this staffing um, company. They're, yeah, they're being. But I'm glad they have to pay. That's how people, not, that's how people change. And that is something that's really important to understand that as much as we like make policy changes and we have the EEOC commission, like, the people who are actually doing the hiring are people with like biases and implicit biases and like racist thoughts in the first place. And like, it's hard to force those people to effectively make change. But one of the ways that will most certainly get companies to change or to force their staff to change is by forcing them to pay for their like obvious issues. Yeah. Accountability, you say. Gee, I wonder where yeah. else that could be pretty helpful. I know. I'm really asking <laughs> for a lot today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in other news in terms of change, moving towards change, um, the New York school, um, New York school is shifting for, they're making a shift for struggling schools. Um, after a two-year pause brought on a, on the on by the pandemic, the New York state officials are restarting their system of identifying struggling schools. In a recent board of regents meeting, the state education commissioner, Betty Rosa, stated that officials want to begin to shift the narrative about how low performing schools are viewed by the public. Um, As a part of the shift, officials this year plan um, to relabel schools considered in good standing as schools identify for local support and improvement. 
The label is similar to those used for struggling schools. For example, the lowest performing schools used to be called comprehensive support and improvement schools or CSI, but will now be called schools identified for compre comprehensive support improvement. The commissioner also stated that when we talk about a good school, who are we including and who are we excluding? The changes are supposed to be reflective of a system that push, pushes for improvements. Um, the planning resources will be shared um, with families and to just clarify the changes. Also, um, they're going to do further research studies on struggling schools prior to the pandemic. Um, they wanna be able to review um, basically like the reading, math, science, and region exam state scores, graduation rates, and chronic um, absenteeism. And the goal is basically to create systemic change. So hopefully this will be um, moving towards, um, you know, a better, uh, you know, educational plan. I do like, yeah. I do like the sound of that, um, you know, you know, going like, because it was always kind of strange, like, you know, what is, you know, what's a good school? Like you say, you can like on the university level, you, you can say any college and someone will say, oh, that's a good school. And what that means depends, you know, changes on who you're talking to. Um, so just, and then, you know, that can be translated down to like what makes a good school like it's a weird thing to just kind of have that judgment um i like that they're kind of being more specific about it saying like you know a good school what is that you know that they have they're good with their local support you know the they don't need you know additional resources they have you know sufficient resources locally um you know to you know function in the way it wants to you know, that, and that's really what, you know, especially with like public schools, you know, what that means, you know, on like the K to 12 level is, you know, quote unquote, good schools, you know, have the tax base to be properly funded. So local, local support, you know, kind of connotes that, you know, the tax base can support the school and, you know, they throw in the improvement there because who doesn't want to improve the school. And then, you know, the, the schools that are lower performing, you know, comprehensive support and improvement, you know, it says, you know, you know, what, what we're just sort of doing isn't working. Like we need more support from outside sources. Um, and we all know, you know, that obviously, you know, systemic racism is often the uh, reason, you know, why certain schools are in that sort of, uh, you know, situation that they're in. I like that they're getting more sort of specific about it. And, and like they, like you said, shifting the narrative from like good school to like locally supported school. Yeah, I, I like that too, because um, sometimes you're, if you're having a conversation with people and you say, um, I went to such and such school and they, you often just sometimes get the frown and I'm like, no, I actually liked my high school. It was fine. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was supported. I, I ended up in college and now I'm in grad school. I'm okay. So I like the idea that they're changing the labels um, so, you know, that we could just kind of focus on what resources and things like that, um, that I guess the schools have or need 
in that aspect. Um, then the other, um, so this is, well, this is more school news. Um, this is relating to student athletes and the Florida school systems where they're tracking the students, obviously the female students' menstrual histories, Ew. but apparently this has been going on for nearly two decades. Ew. Um, yeah. And then Florida schools have asked student athletes about their periods up as a practice that um, they mentioned. Um, this was part of the Palm Beach Post. It, it calls it um, optional. This was optional. But um, uh, they said that it was it's part of a larger annual physical form that, that the doctors across the country use to clear kids for, for sports. But now Florida's student athletes would now have to fill it out a form online, meaning information that was once in paper form will be stored by schools, subject to subpoena and digitally reported through a third party. In addition to other health questions, the form would ask students, athletes, five intimate questions, which I thought this was sick, um, questions about their periods, including at what age they started menstruating and when they had their last period, Florida districts, including um, Palm Beach, Broward, Hillsborough, and Sarasota counties will now store the sensitive data re regarding the health and bodies of minors on a digital platform operated by a third party called um, Activate, um, which the software was founded by a former news corporation executive, John Miller, which has only um, existed for a little over a year and it's spelled um, with a k and that's always a creepy thing to do to just uh, <laughs> make something a k that shouldn't be come on listen i think of other something else <laughs> but i'm not going to say i'm not going to give them that privilege on here <laughs> to call them out um so and then it goes on to saying um the post states don't require most states don't require schools to keep information on students' entire medical history, generally requiring only a doctor's signature page that clears the athlete to play. Doctors who work with the Palm Beach School District confirmed that the, the summary page is the only one, um, the only one that should be shared with the school district. But in Florida, according to Jacksonville.com, um, this was on their site. All of the medical data is turned over to the school while activate as the student information will be kept secure, confidential. Critics noted that the company is not run by medical care providers, meaning it's also not protected by HIPAA laws. Um, if, if subpoenaed, the activate would have to turn over the information even more, which is more concerning. Um, so they gave an example here, the medical history packets on file, they will be kept for seven years. Um, so what parents are feared, the parents and doctors, they worry since, you know, the turn, overturn of Roe v. Wade, mm -hmm. these information is being used. They're worried about what these information are being used for and why it's being collected in the first place. It's proto handmaid's tale shit. Ew. I, okay. Yeah. 
first of all, yes. Like, what the fuck are you using this for? Like, are you trying to track to make sure people aren't getting pregnant? Second of all, when the medical assistants in my gynecologist's office asked me when my last period was, I look at them like, are you fucking nuts? Like, are you? (laughs) No, no, no. You don't don't need this information. Like my poor gynecologist is going through the things that like you're supposed to go through with patients. And I'm just like, lady, move on. Like I'm a social worker. Like, let's just get this over with. Like, you can't track minors periods to like try to arrest them for having abortions like you know like I'm sorry and I know that a lot of this stuff has been going on for a long time and I know that this country has been policing especially black women's bodies for fucking ever but if people cannot truly see how far down the line we have gone of like going back to doing all of this stuff again and how close we are to just becoming like the dystopian future that we have always been destined to be. Like, how do you not see this and flip out? Yeah, this is, I honestly did not know that they were doing this already. Um, I feel like I haven't been a part of like, you know school sports however I've been in like other programs where they would just ask me to do a physical but of course this is New York this was in New York State they I never remember I don't remember them asking me any of those intimate questions so for them to be doing this for the last what two decades this is crazy with minors too like these are yeah but even if you weren't a minor, I don't, as a grown woman, I don't want you in my no. business like that. No, no, totally. <laughs> with you. Much. Yeah, no, 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 I'm totally with you. Like, even as an adult, like, don't ask me these questions, but like, these are children. Like why, like, yeah. why are you even asking them these questions? Like this also like runs into, so there are like multiple issues with this. And obviously like the tracking of people's abortion, uh, um, periods to try to track when they're having abortions is like first thing that comes to my mind but like then you also run into issues with teenagers of like we don't all get our period at the same time Mm -hmm. and you know now you're making kids feel bad like they're not developing as fast as others or making kids feel bad they're developing faster than others like you're asking people questions of like how do you even know that they're excited about like you know like a lot of people like me I did not want this to happen I was like let's push this off for as long as possible and unfortunately I was pretty young when I got it but like why like why are you like getting into people's businesses like this. Like a, for some people, this is really traumatizing. Like all the yeah. bullshit you see on TV about like being so happy and like you're entering womanhood and all this stuff. I was like- Oh, we're oh, far man. from that. That's that's such a false yeah. <laughs> image of what a woman goes through during their menstrual cycle. Just some stupid commercials. And then furthermore, recently- Wait, you, you don't have like glowing seeing... red areas and-, and uh... And uh, your mouth, you know, just turned to the side. You know, those commercials. It's not like that. Mm, yeah, no, Mm-mm. no. I was like, no, no definitely not. <laughs> I mean, but... I've like gotten over it in my old age, but like when I was a teenager, I was like, keep it away, don't want to deal with this. It was, like nothing, because like they always try to sell it to like young kids. 
who are like yeah. on the verge of getting close to it is like, you're entering like adulthood and like, you're becoming a woman and like all this stuff. But what about the kids who don't want that? Like, what about the kids that are like, nah, like done, pass, done. Like now you're making them talk about it more to like strangers and everybody has their business. Ew. Yeah. I guess one last thing I noticed too about this is that um, there recently I've just noticed more and more commercials regarding period apps and I'm just like okay so they're pushing this agenda like just trying to keep track of who's menstruating and who's what having babies what's the commercials (laughs) angle like what are they set like what's yeah use it it's great this is a great way to track when you know when it's coming and yeah if you especially i'll see it when i'm watching um, something on youtube and it's like every other couple of commercials i'm like oh my gosh enough already so okay i gotta be honest i do use one of them or i would never ever 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 know Um, okay so there's some utility to so that. okay so no, there's seriously. some truth to that yeah because but i would I never right attention. now i'll be scared <laughs> honestly i me. bet i bet like tiktok knows the menstrual cycle of any tiktok user that has one so i don't have tiktok so i'm good i don't have <laughs> it so it's a powerful I use, algorithm <laughs> i use my fitbit app but like seriously like i would never like if it didn't tell me yeah. like, i would forget but that's also because I spent a lot of years on medication that kept me from getting it. And like, I'm considering just going back on it because it's really annoying and disruptive to my life. Um, but yeah, it's just like, no, every other commercial everywhere I see now, it's like, use this period app, use these period mm-hmm. products. And I'm like, just like, get off my ass about it. Like nobody wants to actually <laughs> talk about this. <laughs> yeah. But that's how they're tracking us. Um, and then to add more to this, this is more of Dobbs effect. Um, it's there was a there's a 14 year old girl in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, Tucson. Emma. Oh, sorry, oh. Tucson. No, um, so her name is Emma Thompson. Um, she was denied to a refill um, for Meta Tri State Meta. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the medication correctly, but it's medication for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis. So, oh yeah, methotrexate. Okay, thank you. So she was um, denied that medication, um, which she had been taking pretty much a majority of her lifetime because she's been suffering from this illness. Um, so she went to try to refill this prescription at a local Walgreens and the pharmacist goes, no. So of course her mom became furious and is like, now is worried what's going to happen to her daughter's health. Um, her doctor, Dr. Power spoke on behalf of her saying the refusal has happened um, to some older patients, but never someone so young and so quickly after Roe v. Wade law taken into effect. Um, the doctor also stated that his con- concern is that the pharmacist chose not to refill the prescription because um, metatrexate, is that correct, Craig? Methotrexate. Um, metatrexate could be used to cause an abortion, then the pharmacist would be responsible. But since then, um, that local raw greens. Um, they put out a statement which stated, 
our focus is meeting the needs of our patients and making sure they have access to the medications they need and in compliance with appliance applicable, sorry, with applicable pharmacy laws and regulations, trigger laws in various states require additional steps for dispensing certain prescriptions and apply to all pharmacies, including Walgreens. In these states, our pharmacists work closely with prescribers as needed to fill lawful, clinically appropriate prescriptions. We provide ongoing training and information to help our pharmacists understand the latest requirements in their area. And with these supports, the expectation is they are empowered to fill lawful, clinically appropriate prescriptions. Nowhere in there did they apologize or just try to solve this issue. They're, I feel like they're missing the whole point. This child, what is she going to do for the rest of her life at this point? That's really disgusting. I just don't like, I just can't grapple with the fact that the put not even the actuality but the potential of a lump of some of cells growing in a person's uterus means that they no longer have the right to medication for whatever it is because it's not this isn't the only state that's happening in people are being denied life-saving medications, cancer treatments, you know, even just comfort medications, like as a, you know, like a, a person like with arthritis, like deserves the medication that is going to make it easier for them to get up in the morning, but like mm-hmm. being denied this medication because there is the potential that a clump of cells may at some point in my life exist in my uterus is disgusting. Like I don't understand how you can claim to love people so much when you don't want to take care of the ones that are here because of the potential that someone else may show up at some point. Yeah, I I even took this a little further because it made me think about the mental health patients, Um, you know, because certain medications that are prescribed to them, then they're also going to start looking at that as, oh, is this going to possibly cause this, you know, woman to have an abortion if she's on certain mental health medications, but then she needs her medication. So then you rather her have a, um, you know, just an episode, a crisis, than, than just, you know, for the sake of hypothetically being pregnant. Um, so this is where kind of like when I, after I read this, my mind went to that aspect, considering that, you know, I'm in social work school, I'm thinking about mental health. What does that look like for social workers when these patients are having these crises because they can't get on their medication because somebody decides to deny them because you're hypothetically, you're going to become pregnant. So this stuff just makes me so angry. Um, I, yeah, I just, where do I even start to help, you know? Yeah. I just think about the people too, like whether it's cancer treatment or medication that you're taking for a mental health diagnosis, like when people do become, you know, especially, especially for people who become accidentally pregnant, it's like, you're going to immediately deny medication that people need to get up and function every day to save their lives in various different ways, because they are currently pregnant. Like when people, when, you know, when people plan to get pregnant, obviously like 
cancer is an outlier here because it could happen to anybody at any time. But like when people plan to get pregnant, they work with their doctors to like get themselves on medication that they can take while they're pregnant. Like there are plenty of medications that don't, you know, break the blood barrier, the blood brain barrier that won't like be passed on to a child, like through, you know, the umbilical cord and the placenta. And like, you work with your doctor through these things, you know, even when, you know, even for some people who accidentally get pregnant and like, you know, intend on staying pregnant, you know, these are things that you can do, but these are decisions that doctors and the person who is pregnant should be making together. Like the government shouldn't have any, you know, say over this whatsoever. And if I'm sorry, but like, you come into social work school, you come into medicine, like you have to understand that you're going to be working with people that you completely disagree with. And you're going to be helping people to do things that you completely disagree with. And it's not your place to disagree with them. It's your place to do what's best for your client or your patient. And like, I don't understand why this isn't part of a pharmacist job. Like, why do you all of a sudden get to go into your job and say, sorry, I'm a Christian. I'm not doing this for you. Like you're a pharmacist fill the fucking prescription and give it to the person who got the prescription from the doctor who went to like 40 years of school to like maybe one day be allowed to practice by themselves and decided with their patient that this is what they need. You're throwing pills into a fucking bottle because the doctor told you to hand it to the person and move on with your day. And if you can't do that, find something else to do in your life. Okay. But you know what's sad is that I I don't know if when this law came out, but it seems that when so many other cases have been coming out where pharmacists are not filling their prescription, they claim that this has always been a law in terms of that the pharmacist can make some form of decision um, regarding the prescription. And I'm like, okay, well, we, I, I, well, maybe I'm just the one person that haven't heard about it, but it just seems like it's coming, becoming more and more out in the open or more aware, oh, this is the law now, or it's been around. And I'm like, well, why, why didn't we know this before Roe v. Wade was overturned? Well, this, this is a law in some states where pharmacists are allowed to like morally object to filling certain prescriptions based on like their own deeply held religious beliefs, but that law doesn't exist in New York state. And I actually want to say, I think New York passed a law a couple of years ago to specifically disallow this practice in New York, basically saying like, if you're a pharmacist, we're going to hold you to the same standards as we hold other medical professions. Like your religion stays at home with you and can't impact the job that you're doing with other people but this is something that has existed in other states for a long time where you're basically allowed to like morally object doing your job or be it's called being a conscientious objector okay okay well and but it's crazy get a different job don't do that like go this is what i don't understand like if those are your beliefs those are your beliefs and they should stay home but also like go like work in a church instead, instead of like being a pharmacist to the general public. Seriously, I, I mean, to just kind of wrap this up, it's just in a sense of this is going to, it's, it's just a disaster that you see it just unraveling. It just gets worse and worse and worse. I don't know where this is going to go, There's but it's just getting there. worse. Yeah. Yep. Well, we will uh, 
be here to see <laughs> get worse and worse and hopefully Where come up with go, ways right? to reverse that. Um, yeah. But until then, we'll say uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, thank you, as always, to Iridium Falcone mm-hmm. for inspiring the podcast and for our logo and to the Grammy Award-winning Vinnie Alfano of Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho for our theme song. We'll see you next time.